of who we are, where we belong, and consequently, how we ought to behave if we are a Christian. It explores God's glory that gives both us and the church its identity. There are 15 named churches in the New Testament, and all but two of them, that is Antioch and Jerusalem, all but two of these churches had letters addressed to them. And yet this letter to the Ephesians is unique in that it is the only letter that was not written to address specific issues and problems within a church. In fact, the first three chapters of Ephesians are very striking because of their complete absence or almost complete absence of any commands. The only command that I think I can see in the first three chapters is found in chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12 where Paul tells us to remember something. At the outset of the letter, the author clearly identifies himself as being the Apostle Paul, doesn't he? Who, according to Acts chapter 20 and uh, chapter 19, was sort of a senior pastor to the church in Ephesus for two and a half to three years. Ephesus, of course, being the thriving capital city of the Roman proconsular Asia. It was indeed a thriving city and it was uh, a political and commercial centre of a large, prosperous region, the region of Asia Minor, a large city with a population back then of about 220,000 people and which was also a major seaport and trade route and a major centre for the worship of a very popular Greek goddess named Artemis. Paul wrote this letter somewhere between 60 and 62 AD while he was in prison in Rome. And he addresses the letter to God's holy people who are faithful in Christ Jesus. However, we're not too sure where these faithful Christians live. We call this letter Ephesians and we will continue to do so. But if you look at your Bibles, you might see a footnote at the bottom of the page that tells us that some of the more reliable Greek manuscripts don't show any place name in verse 1. And so the original destination of the letter is a little bit of a textual mystery. It appears in some texts, but not others. But this has led some New Testament scholars to see this letter as being a circular letter that was actually sent out to uh, all the churches of Asia Minor, churches like Smyrna, Pergamon, Laodicea, Thyatira, Sardis, and, yes, Ephesus. It may be that this letter was first sent to Ephesus and then circulated around the other churches. Or it could be that it circulated first and ended up in emphasis, uh, Ephesus. And therefore, it might have become more specifically associated with Ephesus. But that's just mere speculation. We really don't know, do we? Thus, it would appear that this letter was primarily written to Christians in that area. But we do know something about those Christians to whom it was written. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 11, 
Paul addresses his readers as you Gentiles. And then you move over to chapter 3 and verse 1, and again Paul says you Gentiles. And so it appears that this letter was primarily written to Christians for whom their faith and trust in God and in Jesus Christ was all new to them. Because unlike Jewish Christians, they would not have grown up with a knowledge of the God of the Old Testament. They would not have grown up with a knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures or of the history of God's relational and redemptive involvement with his Old Testament chosen nation of Israel. Paul begins his letter by introducing himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ or as an apostle of the Messiah, Jesus. An apostle someone who had been chosen to be a messenger of God. But notice how <coughs> Paul doesn't focus on the fact that he is a, an apostle. That's not the important thing, I think, here, as wonderful as that might be. But he seems to focus on how he became an apostle. It was not by his own will. It was by the will of God. An apostle of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And indeed, if it had not been God's sovereign choosing of Paul, Paul would not have been an apostle. In fact, it's probable that he would not have even been a Christian because before Jesus confronted Paul on that road to Damascus, he was one of the chief uh, aggressors against the church. He fought hard to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. It was only his encounter with the risen Christ that totally transformed his life as God redeems him and sends him out as an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul addresses his letter to God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And here we find a threefold description of a Christian. They are God's holy people, a people that have been set apart from the world. And as the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, they are a holy nation, a people belonging to God, God's holy people. Next, Paul describes Christians as being the faithful. They are those who have responded to God's call through faith. These are those who have put their faith and trust in God through Jesus Christ and are continuing in their faith, or we might say persevering in their Christian life. And then thirdly, a Christian is someone who is in Christ Jesus. That might seem obvious, yeah? It's someone who is in Christ Jesus. And Paul will go on uh, and speak about this in a great deal through the rest of this letter. But enough to say for now that without Christ, a person's condition would be utterly hopeless. Paul then goes on in verse 2 to give his customary greeting. He says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, the usual Greek greeting. And peace, a usual traditional Jewish greeting, shalom. And Paul links them both together here. 
And notice it is God's grace. It is God's peace. It is the grace and peace of God the Father, who is the God of peace, and of Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. But then in verses 3 through to 14, Paul seems to explode in very lavish and passionate language with this incredible passage that focuses on the praise of God and of God's glory. <clears throat> All the commentaries make mention here that these verses 3 through to 14 are just one big long sentence in the Greek text. 202 words that seem to roll off the uh, end of Paul's quill without even him stopping for taking a breath. With the focus being totally on God. God the Father, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. In fact, God is the subject of all the verses that follow. Paul blesses or praises God for the way that God in Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Blessings that are there not just for the Apostle Paul, but there for all of us. Verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. And here is God in action. God is the subject of every verb, as we said, and our response is to be one of praise. Three times in this short passage, Paul says that it's all about praising the glory of God. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And then again at the end in verse 14, to the praise of of his glory. Paul begins with praise, he continues with praise, and he ends with praise. Praise God for what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. Paul says God has provided every spiritual blessing. We have everything we need spiritually. It's what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 1 that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. God will not withhold anything from us. That little word every is of most importance. God is not stingy. There is nothing that you need spiritually that God has not lavished upon you in Christ. And notice the two words, in Christ. 11, sorry, 11 times in these first 14 verses, Paul emphasises that all these things are ours in Christ, or in him, or in Jesus. All from God, all in Christ, and as we will see later, all applied by the Holy Spirit. These are spiritual blessings. And that could mean that they are blessings that come by means of the Holy Spirit or that they are spiritual blessings rather than material blessings. Or it could mean both. God has blessed us in the heavenly realms. That is, the place where Jesus now resides and has 
all authority in the spiritual realm as opposed to this earthly realm, which would suggest that Paul is probably thinking about spiritual rather than material blessings. And Paul wants us to be encouraged and excited by these great truths. Our great God is worthy to be praised. And why? Well, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Isn't that awesome? God has chosen us. We didn't earn or deserve these blessings and it's not a right that we are entitled to, you know, to be able to claim these blessings because we have done something to impress God. No, God did not choose us because we're something really terrific. He chose us because he wanted to. Just think about that for a moment. It's as though Paul takes us behind the curtain of history before the world even existed, in fact, before any of us existed, God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless. And notice God didn't choose us because we were holy and blameless. He chose us in order that we would become holy and blameless in his sight. Chosen in him before the creation of the world. The focal point of world history is Jesus Christ and of people called and gathered around him. And Jesus is not simply the means of becoming part of this new people. He is also our head and our focus. The writer to Hebrews says we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith chosen before the foundation or the creation of the world and Eugene Peterson says here we are in on the action long before we have any idea that we are in on the action what an amazing privilege yeah God has chosen us for holiness but then with great privilege also comes great responsibility. For God calls us to live holy lives, to be holy just as he is holy. In verses 5 and 6, Paul goes on to tell us more of why God has chosen us. He says, In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. God predestined that we would be adopted as his children. You got that? He has chosen us and predestined that we be adopted as his children. And like any adoption... It's not, the choo- it's not the children who do the choosing, is it? It's the parents. God says in love, oh sorry, Paul says here, in love, God predestined us. And his choice of us is something that God has, 
taken pleasure in doing. Did you notice that? It's in accordance with his pleasure and will. And that how it is through or by his glorious grace, his totally undeserved grace that he freely gives us in Christ. I mean, what a reassuring of thought, especially for someone like Paul who's stuck in a prison as he writes this, or like someone who might be going through some sort of hardship or suffering in their life. Our status as a child of God does not depend on our willpower or our goodness or our circumstances. God chose us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, it seemed like I was the one who was making all the decisions. I chose to accept Christ as my Saviour and Lord. I chose to follow Christ. But according to the Bible, it says that God was working out his purpose for me from day one. In fact, from before day one, it was before the creation of the world. How do you then reconcile the fact that Scripture says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved and whoever to the Lord may come and whoever believes in Jesus will have everlasting life? How do you reconcile those statements with the New Testament statements about God choosing us, God predestining us? And it's a paradox of scripture. It's a paradox that seems to hang true. The minister of uh, the Methodist church that I <coughs> matured uh, in my early life um, as a Christian, a fellow called uh, Stuart Somerville, once explained this to me as, well, he used an illustration of a wall a big, huge wall that had a door in the middle of it. And the door was closed. And above this door was written, Whosoever to the Lord may come. And then he says, As you chose to go and open the door and walk through it, as you got to the other side of the wall and you looked back, above the door was written, Chosen before the creation of the world. It's a paradox that holds together in Scripture. Scripture seems to say both things are true. And I suppose what we need to do is leave it in God's hands. God chose us. He predestined us as a result of his love, Paul says, and as a result of his divine pleasure and his grace to be adopted into his family. And so we relate to God, not out of, a, not out of a, a, a sense of duty, but as his children. And with all the privileges that that implies. For example, we can now call God our Father. According to Romans 8.17, we are now heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And it's all because of God's love, God's divine pleasure, and it's grounded in God's grace. Now, the thought of God's election and predestination may trouble some people because 
They suppose that if God chooses some people for salvation, then the opposite is also true, that God also chooses those who will go to hell. But the Bible doesn't say that. That's something that we seem to uh, come up with because the Bible says God predestines us. In fact, the Bible is very clear that because of our sinful nature, every human being stands condemned already. Now, let me just say if the thought of uh, election and predestination raises some profound questions for you, then please come and talk to me after the service at morning tea and we can have a bit of a chat on that. But let me just briefly say that Paul's aim here is to lead us into the praise of God. Not to cause us any uh, problems, in our, you know, not to create any theological conundrums. It's to lead us into praising God for what God has done for us. It's interesting that every time predestination is mentioned in Scripture, it is only ever mentioned to encourage us in our Christian faith, never to worry us, and never to stress us out. Ultimate, sorry, ultimately, we need to let God be God in all his amazing sovereignty and love. He, will, he is a just God who would deal with everyone justly. Well, God's choosing of us is a magnificent truth that Paul wants us to rejoice in. For it is one of the spiritual blessings that is ours in Jesus Christ. In verses 7 and 8, Paul says that we can praise God also because in Christ he has redeemed us from sin. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavishes upon us. When I was a teenager, we used to have this chorus we sang at uh, Youth Fellowship that said, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I've been redeemed and I know I am. And Paul wants us to know that this is one of the great blessings we have in Christ, that in Christ we have been redeemed through his blood. And that phrase, through his blood, is sort of like Paul's shorthand here for the cross. For it is on the cross that Jesus died in our place, paying the penalty for our sin. To be redeemed means to be rescued, to be bought back, to be bought with a price. And the image here is that of a slave market. See, according to the Bible, we are all slaves to sin. And our old master is sin. That's what controlled us. It was our sinful nature that directed our life. And then Jesus comes along and frees us from our slavery to sin. And more about that when we come to chapter 2. But for now, Paul simply wants us to say that this is simply amazing stuff. This is amazing grace. Grace that God has chosen to drench us in. The result of God's redemption is forgiveness of sins. All that wrongdoing, all that guilt, all that shame 
taken away. Again, God is not stingy, is he? God is hugely a generous God. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and notice how he has lavished us with his grace, his unmerited, undeserved favour. And the cross of Christ was the most amazing demonstration of the love and mercy and grace of God. Hey, are you getting a handle on just how humongous God's love is for you? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because God has chosen us to be holy and blameless in his sight because God has chosen us to be adopted as his children because, sorry, because God has redeemed us and forgiven us through the blood of Christ and because he has made known to us the mystery of his will. Look at verse 9. With all wisdom and understanding... He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Paul says God has made known to you and to me the mystery of his will. And that's no accident, Paul says. Paul says this is by God's good pleasure that he reveals it to us. He wants us to know. This is something that has previously been hidden in God, but now God has revealed it to us, his adopted children. God here gives us a huge and privileged glimpse of the future. And here's the mystery that God will bring all things in heaven and on earth together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is God's ultimate purpose and plan for the universe. This, this is where history is heading. Have you grasped yet that this Jesus, who shed his blood for your redemption, is himself your God? You see, the lamb who was on the cross is now the lamb who is on the throne. And God's plan is to unite all things together in Jesus, making him the focus and centre of everything. Jesus, to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. Jesus, to whom one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. God's plan is to bring everything together under Christ. And of course, the full outworking of God's will and plan here will be fulfilled when Christ returns in all his glory and splendor. Or as Paul says here, when the times have reached their fulfillment. And God has made this known to us. Isn't that incredible? But be warned. For this also means that there is now no excuse for ignoring God. Because he has revealed himself to us and given us an insight into his divine will and plan. And then lastly, 
we can praise God because he has sealed us as his special possession. Look at verse 11. In him we have, sorry, in him we also, I'll get it right in a minute. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose and his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And here, Paul draws a distinction, I think, between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. You see, in verse 12, he speaks about we who were the first to hope in Christ. He includes himself in that. And then in verse 13, he speaks about you who were also included in Christ. But notice how both groups, Jews and Gentiles, have now been united together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Both groups now share the same inheritance and the salvation of both groups, Jews and Gentiles, is to the praise of God's glory. In other words, this good news, for, this good news about Jesus rather is for everyone. It's for everyone, no matter what your background might be. It's for all of us. And when you become a Christian, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive the gift of God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence within you and begins to transform your life. And Paul says, the Holy Spirit is a deposit. A deposit that guarantees your inheritance in Christ. In fact, that God has personally taken up residence within you. And that itself seems to be a pledge that he will bring you safely to heaven. That he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. The Holy Spirit is a deposit that makes our promised inheritance a dead set certainty. And God has sealed us. And a seal is a mark of identity and ownership, and protection. We are uniquely a child of God, God's possession, and his forever. And notice how all of this takes place to the praise of his glory. And we need to remember that praise is a grateful celebration. Well, how are we to respond to these remarkable truths, you know, these amazing blessings? Well, firstly, we should be bugging the heck out of our family and friends and neighbours who do not yet know Jesus Christ. See, has, God has, has given us a glimpse about what is to come and our non-Christian friends and family will be a part of that as well. For you see, they cannot escape the purpose and plans of God. 
Oh, they may not choose to opt in, but they cannot choose to opt out. And so they need to hear about the redemption and forgiveness of sins that God can bless them with in Christ. And then secondly, this should excite us, yeah? And it should make us burst forth in praise, praise of God. You see, we need to count our blessings. We need to count our blessings and then to rejoice in them and praise God for them. That's what Paul does here, isn't it? He's praising God for these blessings, every spiritual blessing in Christ, even though he's in prison, as he does so. Whatever our circumstances, whatever comes our way, God has richly blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. In Christ, we have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. We've been chosen to be holy and blameless. We've been chosen as a child of God. God has lavished his grace on us and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Are you excited about that? Yeah? Are you excited about that? Do you value everything that God has done for you and given you in Christ? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we again thank you for your Apostle Paul who's still a messenger that speaks to us today. And Father, we thank you for these amazing words that speaks about the amazing blessings that you've given us in Christ. Not because we deserve them, but because you have chosen to give them to us in Christ. Father, we just somehow just within our hearts, are so grateful. But Lord, we ask that you will help us to live our lives in the reality of those blessings. That as people see us in day-to-day life, they will notice there's something different about us. Something that may even cause them to ask us why we behave the way we are behaving. And so we can share about our faith in Christ with them. But Father, we're not going to be able to live in such a way by ourselves and so we thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit that indwells us and and who guides us and empowers us for holy living. Father, we ask that through him you will continue to strengthen and encourage and refresh us each day. That all that we say and do may bring you honour and praise and glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.